Early on in the pandemic, I found myself craving laughter, and I thought, where can I find it? Everything was so scary. Then it occurred to me that the elders in my community make me happy. I love hearing the stories they tell. So we got here on a Saturday, I'll never forget. Tito Archie went out to get the paper and it comes back and it's like a foot tall. <laughs> the New York Times was like, my God, it was like a mattress. I'm Mia Warren and this is A Better Life, a podcast from Feed in Two Worlds. Hearing laughter is something I've missed these past few months. The year 2020 has prevented us from celebrating together and sharing joy. So this season on A Better Life, we produced a segment, Call Your Elders, where we spoke to older immigrants about their lives and how they're surviving the pandemic. On this podcast episode, we'll be revisiting those conversations. We'll connect an aunt in Bangalore to her niece in New York. We'll listen in on two friends in San Francisco reminiscing about their lives in Italy. We'll hear a Greek couple on Long Island exploring new ways of being together. And we'll tune in to two Filipina immigrants writing a love letter to their adopted home of New York City. But first, here's Florence Burrow Adams, a radio producer and sound design professor at NYU Film School. Florence lives in New Jersey. Shortly after lockdown, she called up her parents. They immigrated to the U.S. from Haiti in 1968 and now live in Florida. My parents, Monique and Eric Barreau, have been in self-isolation since March, rarely leaving home. Our family has kept in touch with regular Zoom sessions, and my sisters and I and other family members have supported them with home deliveries. I had a chance to hang out with them over the internet one Sunday evening to catch up. My niece, Kristen, who lives with my parents, recorded their end of the conversation. Hi, can you start by telling everyone your name and how old you are? How many years can we have to have to say the truth? Whatever you want to say, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Eric Barrow. I'm the father of three beautiful ladies. And our family is made of 18 members nowadays. We have a big picture in the living room. We keep on looking at them and counting, and... uh, My wife's name. My wife's name is Monique Oyolbao. She just reminded me. I thought she was going to say it herself. So anyway, I am 82 years of age. How about you, Mom? I am 79 years old. That's right. And her name is Monique, by the way. (laughs) They said, say you call your name. Okay, so tell me, how was your day today? What'd you do? Well, normally, today, today is Sunday, first of all. The Sunday, we, we, we take mass on the TV. Yeah. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. And so, when we wake up, I wake your mother up. And I go make coffee for her. I make her a breakfast, which consists of <laughs> half a banana, and then she takes her coffee. I turn the TV for, on 243, which is where they have the mass. So she has her mass sitting in a footer there. Recliner. <laughs> drinking coffee. <laughs> and uh, that's the best way to take, to go to church. <laughs> so after that, we come down and got dressed and have breakfast. Fix breakfast, you know who fix breakfast? Who does? I do. Just <laughs> on Sunday. Oh, come on. on Sundays is the one. <laughs> so how have you liked or disliked having the family taking care of you now that you're home? We <laughs> You can be honest. No, well let me say that uh, you, 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 Florence, our daughter that lives in New Jersey. Yep, that's me. Has been very, very attentive to our problems. Our needs. She made a list, ordered stuff, and had it delivered here. Mm-hmm. And in addition, the things that we have to renew locally on a regular basis, we're taking care of the Christian, our granddaughter. And Jessica. And also Monique's niece niece does the same too. She buys 
And when they come, she's parked her car in the street, drop the bag and say, I, I can't come in. Mm-hmm. What makes you happy? What brings you joy while you're home? Usually we do things together, you know, yep. and we complete each other. And What about you, Dad? Uh, when? Occupy your time, I not do, today. Sorry. I do. I do. I take care of everything in the house. And let me tell you, when there is a light bulb to replace, if I go, they say, you can't go there. They think I'm a kid. <laughs> Who's you know? they? Oh, well, <laughs> they. the monitor. She's sitting on my left there. You mean Kristen, your granddaughter. She wants to know, who did that? How can you go up there? I said, well, I still do things, you know. <laughs> so anyway. So taking care of things, taking care of mom and the house makes you happy? Well, I'll say yes. <laughs> well, you, she's looking at me. I can't answer. I'll give you the answer another time. <laughs> we'll zoom later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. I know that we've talked about as a family about the importance of you all getting some exercise and really taking care of yourself. Can you tell us what your routine is? What you have figured out to do in the house? Yeah. What we do is in the morning we try to walk from the front door to the around. living room, the dining room. And it, I can have nine laps or more in five minutes. And I keep on going and your dad also. Don't forget, you asked me to put the music and on. And he goes... She wants me to put the music because she dances. He does not volunteer the music. <laughs> He's always, you know... <laughs> dad, you don't like to have the music on? It is... I don't want to say it. What is it? <laughs> say what? Go ahead, say it, Mom. Go for it. it say it. He does not volunteer things like that, you know? He, he just go, go, and making sure that he passed me, you know? <laughs> Wait. You're telling me as you're walking around the living room, Dad feels the need to pass you to go faster? Several times. <laughs> <laughs> When we do the exercise, when we do the exercise, she is watching the time. I say, the time is good for you, but the number of time you go around, it makes a difference. If I can make three times, three turns, when she does one, if she does 15 minutes, in five minutes, I accomplish more than she does. I call that a little exaggeration. Well, if I said, okay, I'm going to walk for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, after five minutes, he's yeah. done. Because I have covered what she covers in 20 minutes. <laughs> don't worry, because I don't care. <laughs> I do what I have to do and, you know. Right. How does this moment compare to other difficult times in your life? Um, you left Haiti, you came to the States, you had to reestablish from scratch, like you had to start with from nothing. How would you say this time, this situation is compared to the things that you went through earlier in your life? So you're talking about when we by the time we yeah. came to the States from our country? Yeah. Oh, we are more at home here than we were in our country. We were young. Our life is like three parts. Our adolescence, we went to school, we graduated, and then we left Haiti. And we came to live in New York, New Jersey area. So that's part two? That's part two. And then we from there, the kids. we spent 20 years in that New York New Jersey area, and then we moved to Florida, and we've been here 32 years, so more, more time in the States than we did in Haiti. But the life, for some reason, took us from living Haiti in the middle of a dictature where people were burning, people were killing people in the street, literally. We came in this country 
and it was the the 60s the late 60s when Martin Luther King was killed Robert Kennedy was killed and there was riots and everything and then when we pack up we came to Florida we had other problems and now we have this experimentation that's, that's, that's basically last as a matter of fact 9-11 we were in Florida this is the Florida event of our experiment with big problems. We didn't know will life become normal again, the right. same as we do today. But I'm sure there's a solution to every problem because we have a, you know, a system in this country that is more regimented than the individual. So we'll, in Haiti, you had a problem, you, you could not solve it. Over here, it will get solved because we are in America. Hmm. Life is not simple. We have to live challenges. We we go through them. And we learn to take one day at a time. And that helps a lot. Because I always said every problem has their solution. And the solution is tomorrow. And with, with that philosophy, I really do not suffer much from anything because I just let go. Well, thank you very much. But that was a pleasure having you. Awesome. That was Eric and Monique Barreau speaking with their daughter, Florence Barreau Adams. Many of Florence's family members contributed to this piece. The interview was recorded by Eric and Monique's granddaughter, Kristen Palestis. The music you heard them exercising to was performed by their grandson, Stephen Pena. And you can check out photos of the Barreaux on our website, taken by another granddaughter, Danielle Pena. Next, we move to the West Coast, to San Francisco, where Sara Maranelli is a radio producer and writer. She came from Italy to the United States more than a decade ago. Sara's friend, Maria de Venezia, is also Italian. The two came together to reflect on life during quarantine. I never missed Italy as much as I did during the peak of this pandemic. In March and April, I watched videos of Italians playing music on their balconies every day and I so wanted to be there. I wanted my old balcony back. Instead, I was trapped in my apartment, hurting from the forced separation. Desperate for a connection, I began recording my Italian radio show from my closet. I gathered the songs that people were playing in Italy and asked the Italian expats to request music that brought them comfort. I called the collection Songs Against Fear. L'Italia derubata e colpita al cuore. Viva l'Italia! L'Italia che non muore. When I played the songs on the show, I felt comforted too. I know other Italian immigrants who felt the same. L'Italia assassinata dai giornali e dal cemento. In June, when lockdown in San Francisco was less strict, I went to visit Maria de Venezia and see how she was doing. Ciao Maria, how are you? So nice to see you. How are you? I'm so happy to see you again. I'm regretting I cannot hug you. No, we can't hug, but <laughs> no, we maybe can. we can do the fake Italian kiss. Yes. Ecco. <laughs> Maria is 76 years old. She's been living in San Francisco for 25 years. I met her through Italian Community Services, a local organization that supports Italian elders. Though we are new friends, I treasure Maria. She's warm, inviting, and she comes from the same generation as my mother. During the peak of the pandemic, for us, watching the news was absolutely heartbreaking. How did you feel about, you know, watching the news I was devastated, devastated, because uh, first of all, 
here, we were able to go out and walk in the street. They couldn't leave, not even the district, just one block. I remember that a friend of mine told me, I go three, four, five times down to the street to put the garbage just to breathe some air. They were really becoming crazy. And then when I heard about Bergamo and all the long line of uh, coughing to be cremated, it's a, I still have goosebumps. I couldn't believe that the, the people who were losing their dears, they couldn't be in contact with them, they couldn't touch them, they couldn't hold their harm. That was something that really, I was devastated by that. Me too. 170 doctors died and some of them were already retired but they they were called to go back and and work in the hospital and they died i remember that very clearly and um, some days i was in a state of panic crying at night and uh, did you ever feel that uh, wow this country is not going to exist anymore did you feel any something really disastrous no i think the italians have a lot of strength and courage because they went through hell during the war and so sometimes they are able to fight against also coronavirus a little bit better because of uh, what they went through and so Italy will not disappear. I didn't feel that. What about you? Did you feel that? No, no not no. that way, not that no. way. I was very afraid about my family. Yeah, me too. I was so afraid that someone could become sick. Yeah. I could and lose my parents. Without being there. Without being there. Because, as you know, that's what was happening in Italy. Yes. People were dying every day yeah. in high numbers. And I didn't know how to comfort myself. What brought you comfort? Many things, I have to say. The comfort is that to check the health of my friends and my family in Italy more or less every day. I was happy to know that they were safe. Another interesting thing that I started doing with my husband, who is a really good cook, <laughs> nice. is working in the kitchen with him. And it was a great pleasure because he started making fresh bread, fresh pasta, and biscotti. <laughs> and More Italian than that. Yes, what can you get? Yes, exactly, exactly. But it's so nice because, you know, being able to learn how to make the dough is very difficult. And then my hands are weak while his hands are so strong. So, I mean, I learn how to do it, how to move my hands in one way, in a side way to make bread. You know, this is our life. Really, we have to love each other because we don't know if it will last a long time or not. And so we try to cook the best food. <laughs> it's true. All those homemade... What about you? What did you do? What were your tools to overcome this terrible time? For me, when I was really in these days of panic, one thing that helped me a little bit to soothe the anxiety was to write, writing in Italian. And this is interesting because I've been here for 13 years I've been writing stories in English, I've been working on a book in English. I thought for many years that I couldn't write in Italian again. Then suddenly I took an empty notebook in March and I started writing a diary. In, in Italian? It. Yes. I called it Letters to Italy, Lettere all'Italia, as if Italy were my lover <laughs> far away from me. I would shut down everything and just sit at my kitchen table. And I felt that that was home. It was a really strange sensation. I was not home, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like I was gaining something again that I had lost. One of the letters became an essay and I called it L'Italia in una stanza. Yeah, yeah, it's like the song. <laughs> like the song, uh, Il cielo in una stanza. stanza uh, yes. uh, the sky in a room and I thought, uh, this is Italy in my room. And I was talking about sheltering in place and I don't talk to anyone in English. And I write in Italian, I read books in Italian. For days, I could feel that I was emerging myself in Italy. The whole body was there. Exactly, yeah, the yeah. body, exactly. That's yeah, exactly yeah, what it was. I yeah. felt like my soul, my body was there. And it was an illusion that... Allows you to suffer less in some way, right? Yes. Did you have anything similar that helped you to recreate this sense of home? 
First of all, we have a good selection of DVD that every year we buy in Italy and so we decided to watch them again. We started from Sicily because my husband is half Sicilian but his Sicily is a very interesting island. So we started watching The Leopard, then we saw La Siciliana Ribelle, that it's a movie that gives you goosebumps again. There's the story of a, a daughter of a mafioso. He was a mafioso, but he was a good mafioso. But anyway, I don't want to say anything, but it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. We saw Cinema Paradiso sì. and then Viola di Mare. Ah. It's uh, the two lesbians in Sicily and ah. oh, it's very, very, I mean, I like it a lot. Anyway, we were very concerned about enlarging our knowledge about Sicily. I did the same thing. I started watching some Italian movies that I had missed. Interesting that you started with Sicily. I definitely started with Naples. And I don't know if you watched it yourself. My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, the HBO adaptation. No, I didn't see it, but uh, I read the book. It was absolutely moving for me to be far away from Italy, watching these girls in Naples. I just identified so much. One episode in particular, I start crying from beginning to the end. Oh. <laughs> I was just crying about Napoli, about the girls, about Italy, about my family, and thinking about my life and the choices that I had made of leaving Naples and now being stuck here and thinking, when can I go again? When can I see my family? So, you know, I start questioning my choice, which is not a good thing to do. But it's natural question that comes out. Yes. How was it for you? Did you feel a little bit that way? Uh, you know, the thing is that I'm divided into two and sometimes I feel like, am I meat? Am I fish? Because uh, when I am in Italy, I know that I have another life in some other place, like in San Francisco, but I really am Italian there. And when I'm here, it's already 25 years, I feel like, yes, I know, I have another life in Italy, but I'm here now. Sometimes is a struggle, what am I? Am I Italian? Am I American? Which is the best place to live? I start with comparing how many friends I've, I have here, how many friends I've uh, over there. I think that people who don't experience this kind of uh, life, they don't understand what uh, it's in, inside your mind. I would have these dreams, especially during the hardest moment of lockdown, about streets of Naples, uh, balconies, piazzas. I would wake up with these really vivid images in my mind. <laughs> And it brought me comfort in the moment, but also a little bit of sadness because they were not real. Right. Yeah. As, as soon as you wake up, you realize that they're just dreams. But still, it was like going back a little bit and being in Italy a little bit. And I mean, I'm still Italian. L'Italia derubata e colpita al cuore. Viva l'Italia. L'Italia che non muore. Viva l'Italia, presa tradimento. That was Sara Marinelli and Maria de Venezia in San Francisco. The songs you heard at the top of the episode were Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot and Viva l'Italia by Francesco De Gregori. For couples, life in lockdown has inspired or forced new dynamics within established relationships. Philip and Nikki Zias have been together for more than six decades. They immigrated to New York from Greece in 1962. Their granddaughter, Anna Delena, is our assistant producer. She spoke to Philip and Nikki about how their marriage has evolved during quarantine. My papu has always loved food. In fact, his favorite story to tell is about his first time ordering at an American restaurant, where instead of asking for a serving of chicken, he asked for the whole chicken. Either way, he still managed to eat the entire thing. And now at the age of 82 years old, he is still learning how to adapt to new circumstances. You ready to hear this? I never thought I can cook. Not even uh, to, to wash a plate. No, not even to, to, to boil an egg. I never thought. 
And uh, also from my tradition in the family, in the, my country, the, the men don't cook, only the women. The men only eating, not <laughs> cooking. After my papu met my yaya, they moved to Bayside, Queens. They were surrounded by a Greek community that always centered around the church. Mayaya would often throw parties and prepare food for over 60 people, especially when it was time to celebrate my papu's name day, an Orthodox Christian tradition to honor the Apostle Philip, the saint he was named after. Yes, of course. All the job, I did it. <laughs> Always I hear my name, Nikki. Give me that, give me this, give me that. Either doesn't take the underwear for the drop. All the women give that. (laughs) You see the nippers joke now. My grandparents haven't been apart for 64 years, and after being isolated in their home for months, they discovered a whole new way of being together. As I remember all of my life, I never saw something like this in the Second World War. About four years old, I was, I didn't get so, so much caring, not even my parents. But now, this virus is very scary. I live in a little island, eight children of the family. I never be, be sick, and I never hear either from grandma, from my mother. Uh, sometimes I sick uh, in summer, I have a little fever. And I go to the doctor, give me medication, a couple of days, I feel perfect. Anna, I'm telling you the truth. In the beginning, I didn't believe it. it. It was so big thing, the virus. And I started scaring because I'm, I have a, I'm in diabetes and I, I feel uh, if I get sick, uh, I'm going to be die. And I stay home with no communication with nobody, with nothing with, with the family. I, I used with my friends to play once a week poker. We play now for 20 years. We never stop. And this year we stop playing. We're afraid to meet each other. And we keep calling from uh, each other by phone. That's the, that's the big thing for me and for, for my friends too. I'm not missing poker game because I'm not playing and I hate the poker. I don't play. I don't play poker. I miss the driving. I miss the stores. I miss the shopping. I miss to go to my daughter's house. Oh, I missed, I missed a lot, uh, the, the parish. The best time in my life, I, ha- I had those years. My wife is excellent and a good, good cooker. She was making so nice food. Everybody was waiting when we're going to make celebrate, some celebrate to come at my house to, to eat uh, my wife's uh, food or the cakes, or the cookies. And I cook almost one week. I, I invite 60 people in the house. They have week cook, and the, the another have week bake. Everybody comes to see the table. Everybody's surprised. So I cook, I take care of the kids, and I'm sewing the dress I wear at the party. But we had music, a lot of music, live music. I knew it is a lot of work, but I make me happy that time because I'm young. But now, I stop because I'm, I'm older, you know. The grandchildren come. So I make cake 
and I bring to my daughter's house. Special Kolorakia, the grandchildren love it. So now I wait, my daughter, she's gonna make parties. <laughs> right now, I feel much better because I live together for my husband. I'm not going anywhere. I stay for three months inside the house. And I start to teach him to cook. I try to cook, and whatever I, I can, I know I do it. Whatever I don't know, I am asking. Every little while I'm calling him, how are you doing this, how do you do this? You wanna uh, uh, kind of a hamburger, you see? No, no, no. Fry? No. No. Huh? No. fry. She's teaching excellent. I'm very, very happy. We cooking every day, every day different food. I teach him a lot of recipes. Soup, uh, dolmades, pita, stuffed peppers, leg lamb, and potatoes. Pasticcio, usaka. You like, uh, I cut some tomatoes from the <laughs> garden? <laughs> we did we it with uh, a kind of shrimps with uh, sauce, but di different way. And uh, the sauce, we make a separate sauce, separate the shrimps. No, the shrimps they put on the sauce. Yeah. And then they have their eyes uh, white. And uh, it's a lot of, lot of work on this. Too mess for the kitchen. <laughs> but on uh, the end, you, you have a good food. <laughs> I asked my papu, who is a better cook, you or Yaya? Whatever she knows, I learn exactly like her. When you test food from her and test from my food, it's the same testing. I then asked my Yaya the same question. Uh, of course. <laughs> of course I'm better. <laughs> Some secrets I don't... I don't give to him. I keep it for myself. <laughs> that was Anna Delena speaking with her grandparents, Philip and Nikki Zias. The music you heard was a Greek folk song called Yiftipula which translates to gypsies. It was played and sung by Philip Zias on his bazooki. You're listening to Call Your Elders, a special presentation of A Better Life, a podcast series from Feed Into Worlds. In most of these conversations, our producers were checking in with their immigrant elders. But for this next one, we decided to switch it up a bit. Rama Reddy is a travel and food journalist in New York City. Although she's lived in the U.S. for years, Rama remains closely connected to India and the people who shaped her as a young woman. Here's Rama. My Aunt Indra is an alert and sharp 93-year-old, and I've always admired her for her grace and intellect. She lives with her son and daughter-in-law in Bangalore. I lived with my aunt for a couple of years as an undergraduate, while my parents were living abroad. I've been thinking about Indrata a lot these days, so I called her up to see how she was doing. Who's the one person that you want to hug when this lockdown is over? Can I give you a hug from here? <laughs> All my lovely nephews and nieces, I love and I could hug all of you and bless you and hope things go well for all of you. That is so nice. I'm giving you back my hug <laughs> and all my kisses. We are uh, going through such a difficult time right now with COVID-19. Um, have you ever lived through anything like this in your life? Never, never, Rama. But I remember long ago, my mother's aunt, she say there was this terrible disaster that came as an influenza 
in, in the turn of the century, you know, she was a very elderly person, like I am at this age. She was at that age when she was talking to us. She said, you don't know the hundreds of thousands of people who died during that flu. But she would still have horror in her voice when she would talk of that age. She was a young woman at that time. But there wasn't this isolation. People would get infected and they'd die. This pandemic was the first time where people were aware, made aware of the seriousness. This It was almost like an attack on humanity, this thing. And you didn't know whether you'd pull through. Indrata grew up during British rule in India. Her father was director of agriculture of the Madras Presidency, an important position in India's agrarian economy. I asked Indrata to describe a scene post-India's independence, when she was in her 30s. We used to go up to the hills every year for a short fortnight visit. And we used to go to Uti, which is in, in the Western Ghats. It was a very small town when the summer heat and the dust was unbearable in the plains. And we'd go to the hills and it would be so beautifully pleasant. There was no dust, there was no heat. I remember walking into the glades. There would be pine trees and eucalyptus trees and the perfume of the pine needles when you tread on it, get that beautiful smell. Your, your, your feet would crunch on the pine needles and there would be these massive eucalyptus trees with their bluish green leaves and uh, walk down and find, they're not farmers, they're really tribal people. They would collect wild mushrooms and strawberries and pack them in little baskets with leaves tucked into the basket and, and they, they would put the wild mushrooms on top so that the basket would look chunky and nice for the buyers. The strawberries, they were small but very sweet and made a perfect uh, dessert with, uh, with cream and the dusting of sugar. And um, in the evenings, it would be chilly and, and we'd sit on the carpet with the plates on our laps and enjoy our wild mushrooms and, and our uh, strawberries. Uh, I'm curious, how was life like during the British occupation? Um, did you have any interaction with the British? When I was in school, I went to a school in Uti, which was which a convent school, and most of the children there were the children of the expatriates who were posted in the plains and they wanted the children to escape the heat and they, they were sent to Uti. And there were lots of girls. They were very, very friendly. Yeah, uh, but... Uh... Do you think it was comfortable for all of India during the British period or just for uh, upper class Indians? I don't think um, everyone was happy. There was a lot of resentment. There was that feeling that they were the rulers and we were the, we were the ruled. I remember my father once came home furious and he, he was t telling my mother that he had a brush up with one of the advisors who was an Englishman and he had been particularly rude in spite of the fact that my father was the head of the department and so highly qualified. The, the other man who was an Englishman thought that he could push him around. That was their attitude. How do you feel India is today in comparison? We're of course extremely proud of the fact that we, we are free and we are independent and we are respected and we count as a country that matters in the world affairs. What's your hope for tomorrow? That I should pass away peacefully, Rama. There's nothing more that you want out of life. I've had so much love from all your children that what more can I want? So when I always say, Tell people, never, never mourn when someone old has passed away. It's a fulfilled life and it's a natural thing. You grieve only when someone is a 
possible when they're young and they have responsibilities. That is, that is true sorrow. So it's been a good life, no regrets, and, it's, and whatever comes tomorrow, I'll accept it with, with joy. When I was in college, you opened your home to me and so many of my cousins. And we came and stayed for many years. And uh, one of the things I loved the most was having dinner together at 7 o'clock every night. And it was so beautiful. And I want to thank you so much for doing that for me because it kind of gave me... Um, I don't know, a feeling of family. No thanks are necessary. I loved having everyone. And I was so happy that you were there. Your children were there to give companionship to my two children. It gave me so much joy just to see a house full of children and you being all happy and laughing and uh, argumentative and yet loving each other and spending time together. I felt it was a blessing which gave me as much pleasure as it must have been to you. I still remember you as a child coming and sitting on my lap and me holding on to you. I felt blessed that I was able to communicate and, and love so many people without any, there were no conditions. It was an unconditional love that I had for all of you. I felt it that way too. It was true unconditional love. This has been such a beautiful conversation with you. So thank you so much. Okay, darling. My love. Give my love to the children and to Hadish. That was producer Rama Reddy speaking with her aunt, Indira Reddy, in Bangalore, India. For our final Call Your Elders, we have a conversation between two Filipina immigrants from different generations who have made New York City their home. Rosalind Tortasillas immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines in 1989. In those early years, one person in her family was her lifeline to everything New York and American. Since my husband Jake and I settled in New York, Tita Margaret and Tito Archie have been our closest relatives. But when they came over from the Philippines in the 70s, they didn't realize they'd end up planting a stake in New York for their clan. Tita Margaret is 72 now. After decades in the city, she and Tito Archie moved to a seaside town two years ago. I wanted to hear her story of coming to the United States. We were just 23 years old. We didn't know how scary it was because we just weren't tuned to the scary parts. We were tuned to the, the promise of our lives together. That was what really um, pulled us forward. And, and also the optimism for what, what could be possible. So we got here on a Saturday, I'll never forget. And Tito Archie went out to get the paper and it comes back and it's like a foot tall. <laughs> the New York Times was like, my God, it was like a mattress. And he plunks it down. We were staying in a hotel. He plunks it down and we're like, oh, you know, you're like, oh, my God, all this is happening in New York. Wow. There was a big, thick classified ad section. And, um, you know, we had read that that's where you went to look for jobs. In Jake's family, you were kind of like the forerunners, right? You're the first people in their family to sort of open the way into into New York. And so when we got here, we were kind of looking to you, gaining oh, wow. from your experience. <laughs> and you sort of introduced us to, to the city and to life here. I remember there was this restaurant, America. You remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it seemed like everyone who was new in the city, you yeah. would take them there. Yeah. It was downtown in the Flatiron District. And it was cavernous. It was huge. And it was painted with idealistic um, American posters. Huge American flag. Sweeping plains of the dairy land with cows and the Statue of Liberty with flags all over and stars shining on the floor from these spotlights that actually beamed down starlight on the floor as you walked in. And uh, when, you, when you came in to the restaurant, they would greet you and they would say, welcome to America. <laughs> it was 
world and we loved it so much. America is now the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. America has passed the grim milestone of 20,500 deaths to overtake Italy as the world's worst 20, hit nation. 20,000 empty chairs were set up on the ellipse over the weekend, each representing 10 people in the U.S. What's been the hardest part of this for you? In the very beginning, what was really terrifying was that um, we didn't know where it was coming from. The, um, the virus, that it could come anywhere and from anything and, and everything. It is impossible to explain the panic that we felt. It kept on magnifying. We were engulfed with a, with a, a fear of being helpless, not knowing how to really take care of our, ourselves. And I thought, you know, we have to be strong for each other. And more so, I thought, I've got to command myself so that I don't drag Tito Archie down. Was that a first for you, just sort of really feeling out of control? Is that something you've, you've not experienced before? We have experienced it, actually. During 9-11, you know, that was really um, perhaps the most terrifying prior to this. Um, you know Tito Archie was in the building and made it out. So um, that stayed with us, and it's still with us nonetheless. But this was a very different experience. It was like something's coming in, and it's going to take over my health. And uh, versus a bomb is going to explode, and we're going to be blown to smithereens. You've seen New York come through really bad things, right? Yes. <clears throat> this pandemic, it was really hit hard. Do you have a response to people who think, like, this is the end? Yeah. When we went through the worst of times for us during the horrific fear that engulfed us during 9-11 and wondering if we'd ever see New York come back. New York was on its knees. New York was decimated. People were leaving. People were cursing New York. Some people don't even realize what 9-11 was. They read the stories about it, but did they feel like a dagger in their heart that reached in and extracted their, their, their entrails? I mean, no, but that's how we still feel about it. And we were even wondering if we had to leave then. But we always wondered about what would happen next. You can carry that thread through New York's, the spirit that crashed, lifting itself back up, lifting the people with it, and the people striving to make it even better, and then crashing down again with new people. Many people have left, but I remember standing in the area by Grand Central, all the fresh-faced people coming out, the kids coming out from the subways. That's a whole new generation of brand new New Yorkers all over again. And I think about who am I to be jaded about New York when it's kind of, it's kind of been, been like this hydra, kind of beat it down, another head pops up, another head pops up and 50 heads pop up and there you go, we're brand new again. With 9-11, you know, you did go through like a really ugh, horrific time of it and it, things were really dire. But did you at some point say, you know, we, we survived that, we're, we're going to be okay? I think I utilize compartmentalizing, making little chapters of the horrificness. And if I could say, okay, we finished that chapter and um, it's still bad, it's still sad and there are so many deaths, but somehow we're still here to not take a broad brush and say, everything's horrible, I can't, I, I can't breathe now. You know, it's like, it's more about, okay, little chapters and we close that chapter and we open a new one so that the stages of, of horror and, and the pandemonium in my heart and in my mind are quieted knowing that one chapter is complete 
last time we were talking about those old pictures. Are you doing a lot of that lately, looking at old pictures? Or? I have ambitions to uh, string some photos together and see if I can create some art from that. I'm taking like a photo diary of things we observe as a spring move from the winter. The shadow patterns change. And now we're noticing that it's getting darker earlier. And so we've, that's a chapter. Our little photo diaries help us because we look back and we say, wow, look at this. Remember how we were feeling at that time? I don't feel that anymore now. I have new concerns, but not those. And those really heavy duty, all engulfing, dark, blanketing emotions, they're not here right now. You know, I, I'm afraid to say it because I don't want to call them back into existence again. You know, it's like, no, don't come back. <laughs> but um, yeah, knock on wood, you know, it's been um, chapter by chapter. Is this a new realization because it's a new challenge? What it is, is a deeper um, experiencing of what I have been learning all along. My parents used to talk about the time before the war and after the war. And then we used to talk about before 9-11 and after 9-11. And now we're in the pandemic. And I wonder, how are we going to talk about life after the pandemic? And what, what part of that can I be living now? What is the future that I want to create and support people through and help them see the majesty of what can be possible That was Rosalind Tortesilla speaking with her aunt, Margaret Gomez. To see photos of the people who you heard on this podcast episode, visit our website, abetterlifepodcast.com slash episodes. This episode was produced by Kenny Leon and me. The Call Your Elders conversations you heard were produced by Florence Barreau-Adams, Sara Maranelli, Anna Delena, Rama Reddy, and Rosalind Tortesillas. Our audio engineer and senior producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our assistant producer is Anna Delena. Our development coordinator is Alejandro Salazar-Dyer. Our executive editor is John Rudolph. Special thanks to Zahir John Muhammad. Our music was composed by Farid Sajjan. I'm Mia Warren. Thanks for listening. Call Your Elders and A Better Life are produced by Feet in Two Worlds. For 15 years, Feet in Two Worlds has been telling the stories of today's immigrants and advancing the careers of immigrant journalists. Our supporters include the Ford Foundation, the David and Catherine Moore Family Foundation, the Ralph E. Ogden Foundation, the Listening Post Collective, and anonymous donor and listeners like you. To support our work, visit us at abetterlifepodcast.com. Feed in Two Worlds is a project of the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School.